Would you open to 2 Timothy chapter 4? Uh, we are coming to a to kind of a close of uh, these letters from Paul to Timothy, 1st and 2nd Timothy. And uh, we will begin 2 Timothy 4 today and we'll wrap this series up in the next weeks. The words that we're going to speak about over t- today and the next weeks are literally Paul's uh, last recorded words uh, in the scripture. And so most scholars believe, and I, I would agree, that 1 Timothy was written, then Titus, then 2 Timothy. Uh, we're going to, after Easter, we're going to go to Titus, and that'll take us into the summer. Uh, so what we're going to be talking about today and the next weeks are literally the last recorded words in the Bible of the Apostle Paul. I will tell you. Uh, that the words that we're going to engage on today is solemn uh, and serious. It is his final words to his son in the faith. He is passing the baton of ministry to before he passes away, before he dies. He's going to die a martyr's death for his faith. It is solemn. It is serious. It is full of lament. We've been talking about lament a lot this semester, uh, holding the hope of God, the promises of God, the peace of God. At the same time, we're holding pain and suffering and sorrow, and they do not have to be mutually exclusive. We can hold all of that together. Lament is holding that space of hardship and of the hope that we have in Christ. As I was working through this this week and reading chapter four over and over and over again, it feels feels a bit like being with someone that you love at the end of their life, and they know it's at the end of their life. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation before. I've been in that situation a few times, and it is sacred. It is solemn. I'm looking at Kelly. It is serious. It is profound. That's 2 Timothy chapter 4. I will tell you the intensity of the words are palpable. It is so intense, and it reminds me of some intense words that Paul spoke in a previous letter to the church in Philippi, and he said these words, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The context in Philippians chapter 1, there was really for Paul some hope, even some expectation that his earthly ministry where it was going, it was serious, like it was serious, but I, I, I read Philippians, and I, especially Philippians 1, and I go, there was still like some expectation and hope that my time is not over yet. God's going to give me more time to minister. Well, we get to 2 Timothy 4, and Paul is squarely in to die as gain. He is squarely there. He is on death row. The end is near. Solemn, sacred, intense. I want to start by just zooming in and speaking for a little bit with you about verse 1 as we get started. Um, Paul writes, in the presence of God and Of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing, speaking of his second appearing, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, Timothy. And the charge will be verses two to five. But he sets the stage for the charge with verse one. And there's some things in here I want to talk about because it helps us understand the weightiness and the seriousness of the charge that he's going to give to Timothy. He says, to begin with, in full view of God and Jesus, meaning, Timothy, I'm not just telling you this. I'm wanting you to hear this for me, but I'm wanting you to hear this in the very presence of God the Father and of Christ Jesus. He wants Timothy to feel the full weightiness of the charge. When I have the privilege to officiate weddings, and I'm seeing some couples in the room of weddings that I've had the privilege of officiating, the flow of the wedding ceremony, you know, there's the processional and then... uh, the grooms come in and they dap up the they dap up the groom. They might like give him something in his ear, and all that's happening. And all the ladies come down, and then the entrance of the bride. Everybody stands. Y'all with me? Right? We've all been at weddings. She comes down, and then uh, we I get some 
uh, welcoming words and pray. And then in the wedding ceremony, I call it the charge to the couple. It's like, it's the message that, that I'm asking the Lord to give to me, to give to this couple on their wedding day before they step into covenant marriage. And um, it's, a, it's a serious message. It's, uh, and I, I want them to feel the weightiness of the seriousness. And, and so I call it the charge to the couple. And I'll say something similar that Paul says here. I'll say something like, in view of God and these witnesses, I solemnly charge you. I want the couples to hear it from my heart, but I really want them to hear it in the presence of God, to feel the weightiness of what they are about to step into. You guys with me right now? I think this, for me, feels very similar to what Paul is is saying to Timothy, he wants him to fill the full weightiness of the charge. So he says, in full view of God and of Jesus, and then he says, Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. What Paul is referencing here is Jesus' second appearing or second coming. The Greek word for appearing in verse one is epiphania, which is where we get the word epiphany from. And so in Christian theology, we celebrate Jesus's first epiphania at Christmas, the incarnation. It's, it's the celebration of Jesus coming in his first advent or his first appearing. And then we, in Christian theology, we anticipate with joy and expectation Jesus's second appearing. And so what Paul is speaking about here in verse one is his second appearing. Uh, Paul uses the same word, epiphania, in 2 Timothy 1.10, the beginning of his first letter, and he is speaking specifically about the first appearing, and now he is wrapping up the letters, and he is speaking specifically now about the second appearing. And so what I want to talk with you about here is just to do a little Bible study action on what does it mean that Jesus will judge the living and the dead at his second appearing because that is, that is the vision, that is the mindset that he's given Timothy before he gives him the charge. As he is getting him in the environment and atmosphere and expectation of Jesus returning a second time to judge the living and the dead. Why? So that he feels the weightiness of his pastoral calling. So, Three, some verses to look at. I'm not going to look at all these verses for time's sake, but I did want to make three points about this. First point, when Paul is speaking about Jesus coming as the judge, he means specifically Jesus. John chapter 5, Jesus' authority is being questioned by Jewish religious leaders because he healed someone on the Sabbath, and they were coming against him because he was healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus makes this very clear statement in John 5, 22. The Father judges no one. And then he says, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Do a Greek word study of the word all, and you're gonna find that the word all means all. All judgment has been given by the Father to the Son and he will, he will come again. There will be a second epiphania. And when he comes, he, the Lord of glory, Jesus the Christ, will judge everyone, the living and the dead. That's what Paul is awakening in Timothy. Well, who are the living and the dead? Uh, there's this incredible passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18. I'm not going to read those verses. Write that down. Go read that later. It's where people that, in my opinion, uh, let me be careful with my words here. Uh, let's just say that some people love to talk about everything that's going to transpire at the second coming. And people that love Jesus land in all different camps about what's going to happen. And they get really, let's just say they get passionate about it. This is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. So people who believe in what's called the rapture really love 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18. 
By the way, the word rapture is not in the scripture anywhere. But the idea is that Jesus is going to come on the clouds and the living and the dead are going to be, the dead are going to be raised and they're all going to go back to heaven and then it's going to have this seven-year tribulation period and all the Christians are going to be gone from the earth. I'll just tell you, I don't, my theology doesn't lend that way. Uh, I don't think that's what's going to happen. But, but I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying that 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18 doesn't talk about a rapture, but it does talk about this. The living are those who will be alive at the time of his return. So if Jesus returns in his second epiphania today, the living, that's us. The dead are those believers or people who have passed away from this life before the second coming. It's just that's simply what it means. The dead are those who will experience a resurrection at the second coming, and the living are those who are alive. Y'all with me right now? Third point, two judgments, two judgments. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. He's gonna judge the living and the dead, and two judgments are going to happen. This is biblical theology about what's happening at the second epiphania. Revelation 20 speaks of what's called the great white throne judgment, which feels real scary. The great white throne of judgment. Let me just tell all of you this. Um, Believers in Jesus will not be at the great white throne of judgment. It's very clear in Revelation 20. But believers will be at what's called the judgment seat of Christ, which Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, And that's where believers receive a reward for how they have been conduits of gifting and time uh, to, to move God's purposes on the earth. And so there's a judge, Jesus, judging the living and the dead, the great white throne of judgment, Revelation 20, and the judgment seat of Christ is all going to be happening at the second. Here's the big point I want to make on this. Not one person who has ever been created in the image of God, and all people are created in the, in the very image of God, no one, no one will be able to remove themselves from judgment when Jesus returns. I think that's the, that's the weightiness of the biblical theology I want to invite you to, to hold. Uh, no one will escape divine judgment at Jesus' second coming. The seriousness of verse 1 adds to the weightiness of Paul's charge, which is verses 2 to 4. We're going to read that now, and you're going to hear nine rapid-fire exhortations, weighty, serious. Here's the charge. Usually when I'm offering or giving a charge to the couple in a wedding, I may have two or three points, and I'm trying to keep my time to like 10 minutes. Um, I don't think Paul really cares about how many pages. I mean, it's literally like in three three verses. It's a rapid fire of nine exhortations. They're all weighty. They're all serious. And then one more strong warning about false teachers, which has been something that Paul has been talking about over and over and over again with Timothy. So let's read these. I'm going to read uh, verse one to five, actually, uh, with you. Uh, Let me get there. 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing, second appearing, second epiphania, and his kingdom, new heaven, new earth, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience. Do all of this with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. 
and they will turn their ears away from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, in opposition, in opposition to people who have itching ears and are turning away from truth, you, Timothy, you keep your head in all situations. You endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge or fulfill all the duties of your ministry. And with that, Paul ends his charge to Timothy. The last things that he would give to Timothy to do, verses two to five. Uh, Here are the five rapid fire exhortations from verse two that I wanna walk through with you. Uh, Preach the word, aka herald the word, share the word, proclaim the word, get the good news of Jesus to as many people as you can. Preach the word. And I think about word, like, you see, what's he, what's he specifically referencing? And a commentator that I read this week, I thought this was really helpful. And 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 2, when he says, preach the word, let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, hear what Paul told Timothy right at the beginning of his first letter. 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Here's the word. Here's the word. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the word. Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus. God, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John 1, God put skin on, moved into the neighborhood. All of the prophecies of old spoke of a coming Messiah, Savior. It is Christ Jesus. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is now. Christ Jesus has come into the world here with you and with me. God's glory can be seen now. The new covenant of his grace has been inaugurated. Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. Why? Because sinners need saving. We need a rescue, and his name is Jesus. It's the word. Preach the word. Um, One of the things that I, I, I want to do and continue to want to do with us when we're reading and studying scripture is that we're always keeping the context in front of us. And so let's keep the context of first century Ephesus in front of us. There was so much challenge for Timothy in literally battling against false teachers, heretical false teacher, false teachers that were infiltrating the church and causing people to believe lies that were removing them away from the church. Now, that can happen in today's culture, certainly, no doubt. But I, I just typically not part of my pastoral day or week or journey or season. Like I'm not, that's not a, I'm not typically like in this situation where someone within our church is teaching something in a church context contrary to the gospel. But that's what was happening in Ephesus. But what's more prominent for me around preaching the word, uh, whether it be here in front of you or one-on-one or one-on-few in the small group that I'm part of or in my office just sitting in pastoral care and counseling with people, is this. I spend a lot of time helping people untangle the lies of religion and legalism. I spend a lot of time preaching the word to people to help them be free from being entangled in legalistic, shame-bound, toxic, guilt-bound realities of life where I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really free. I'm so stuck in religion and legalism and shame. I'm, I'm not experiencing the fullness of life that Jesus has given to me. I spend a lot of time doing that, and so it's a privilege and joy for me to preach, proclaim, share the word, the saving, gracious, merciful word of God to anyone uh, that is willing to hear me proclaim it to them. And I have to, must preach the word to myself, lest I ever forget. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, aka in every season, all the time. 
take every opportunity to share, proclaim, invite people to the word Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. By the way, when Paul said that, he said, of whom I am the worst. So I'm not preaching at you. I'm sharing with you what I have experienced in my own life, and I'm inviting you to the same salvation that I have. And then he tells the Timothy, you gotta be prepped, man. You gotta be ready all the time. Peter's words, you might know this verse, 1 Peter 3.16, always be prepared to give an answer or an account to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Like be prepared to answer people who ask you. And I think that's an important word, who ask you. What, what kind of life do you have to live in order for someone who doesn't have the hope that you have in Jesus? They don't have the hope of Jesus. They don't have the peace of Jesus. They don't have um, the healing that you have experienced in Jesus. But somehow, someway, you have built equity with them. Somehow, someway, that they would actually ask you. Like, I think that's worth considering, don't you? Like, we gotta be gentle. We've gotta be respectful. We've gotta be relational so that people will actually ask you, what a gift and joy for someone to see something in you that they would come to ask you. I don't understand. I don't understand how you worship God when you have suffered the way you suffered. That doesn't make like natural sense to me. What's that all about? Ah, what a joy to get to share that. Would you agree? But to invite people into space with you. I mean, when I, when I was trained in ministry in college, this was, this was how I was trained in ministry, about being prepared in season and out of season. Two statements. Earn the right to be heard. Earn the right to be heard. How do we earn the right? Gentleness and respect, relational, care. And the second one is this. People don't, people don't care they don't care about what you know unless they know that you care. They just don't, especially young people, especially young people. Um, so we need to cultivate atmosphere and environment for caring. Would you agree with that? And gentleness and respect so that they actually are around you enough to see the hope that you have. And they would actually ask about it. And Paul just says, Timothy, be prepared because people are going to ask you, because you're the real deal. You, you are the real deal, Timothy. And people are going to ask you, be prepared all the time. And then it gets like, but also, Timothy, like, you got to correct and rebuke. Like, you're, in a, you're contending for the truth here. And wolves in sheep's clothing are infiltrating the ranks, and you have to protect the truth of God. And so there is an element to ministry for you, Timothy, where correction is needed and rebuke is needed and encouragement is needed. In the Greek, the word can be translated encouragement. It can also be translated exhortation. Sometimes we think like exhortation is kind of like harsh or serious, you know what I mean? And encouragement is like light and fluffy. It's, it's encouraging and exhorting. It's the same reality. And he wants Timothy to be ready to do this. And he says, with great patience. And it's going to require patience. Ministry requires patience. If you were here last week, um, Lucas did a great job of unpacking what patience means from uh, the end of chapter 3. And it means long-suffering. Like, Timothy, you got to preach the word, you got to be prepared, correct, rebuke, and encourage, and you got to be long-suffering. You have to have a long temperament. You can't be easily angered. Verse 5, you got to keep your head. Man, they're going to try to get under your skin, bro. You got to learn how to keep your head in every situation, and you got to be patient. Um, ministry requires patience. Any, any person that engages intentionally ministry Christian ministry, and you're looking at these five imperatives, it requires patience. Why? Because we can't control, we don't control or determine anyone's responses. 
And to be frank with you, you walk these out in your life, not everybody's gonna, not everybody's gonna agree with you, and some people are gonna be angry with you for what you believe. They just are. And that's what he says in verse three. Know that people will reject the message because they only wanna hear what they wanna hear. This is, this is the imperatives, but you gotta know what you're stepping into here. You gotta understand that. Paul uses the phrase sound doctrine seven times in the pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy, to imply absolute truth, and you gotta make your stand for what is true. Jesus said this about truth. You will know the truth. John 8, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. John 14, last supper. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The word of Jesus, the proclamation of truth from Jesus isn't I am a way. It's not I am a truth. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. That's the message of Christ. And it is radically inclusive. All who are thirsty come, all who are broken come, all who, um, all who are in need come, all who are weary and heavy laden, all, everyone come. I, am, I desire, my heart is desire for no one to perish, but for all to come. So it's radically inclusive, but the way, the way is Jesus. The truth is Jesus. Well, who are, who are you, who the bleep are you to tell me what is true? Well, I'm just, my heart here is to simply share with you what I have become convinced of in my own life and the transforming work of grace and mercy, and that Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And so I stand here convinced, I'm just, this is what I believe. Shut up. I don't care what you believe. You feel that? That feels like heartbreak, but I just, I mean, I could sugarcoat it for you if you want me to sugarcoat it for you but I would rather just tell you what it is. Some people will hear you and they will lean in and they will long for what you have and some people will reject you because of it. And that's why Paul says, bro, you gotta keep your head. If you get all wrapped up and you let people get under your skin, like I can tell you right now, I can tell you right now that Ministry requires tough skin. It, just, it does. And it's hard because not everybody's going to agree with you not, and not everybody's going to like you. Some people are going to hate you for it. I feel that. I feel that. It's human nature to hear only what I want to hear. It's human nature to close my ears to anything that counters my idea of truth and pleasure. And an itching ear is only going to be soothed by gathering a great number of people. Ha, 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 ha. Thank you. Thank you for scratching and tickling. That's exactly what I wanted. I just wanted you to agree with me but I, Paul's exhortation to Timothy is not sugar-coated, and I respect it. I respect it. And here's what he says about the word last week. Paul says to Timothy, like all scripture, the, this is life. This is life. This is life. And it's God-breathed. It's God's words to us, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So he takes this from last week and he goes here this week, preach that word, be prepared, 
correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. He uses rebuke and correcting in 2 Timothy 3, and he uses it again in 2 Timothy 4, rebuke and correct. Rebuke and correct. One of the things that Lucas said last week is he said, if the Bible says I'm wrong, then I'm wrong. If you were here, do you remember him saying that? But not everybody's down for that message. Sometimes I'm not even down for that message. Perhaps sometimes you're not down for that message. But I believe that. I agree with that. Many people, I, some people aren't down for it. I'd say many people are actually very, very, very against it in first century Ephesus. Relevant to 2023? Perhaps. So Paul exhorts Timothy, young brother, our hearts are to be patient, long-suffering, not easily angered, keep your head, and kind and careful in our instruction. This is from chapter two, in the hope that God will grant people repentance, that God's mercy and kindness will move in such a way that people's minds will be changed and their lives will be changed. But also he knows this. People are free. People are free to come to the message of salvation in Jesus or to reject it. And so he needs to prepare Timothy for both of those things. Many will turn away from God's salvation and they will gather, and he says this, not just one or two people, I'm just going to get some people that I agree with. I'm going to find me a podcast. I don't think they had podcasts in first century Ephesus, but we got a lot. I mean, it, if you don't have a podcast these days, you're like, you're totally behind the eight ball here. I mean, the amount of teachers that you can gather around you in 2023 I'm not sure there's ever been a time in the history of mankind that you can get enough teachers to say to you what you want to hear them say so that your ears get tickled. I mean, that opportunity is there for us. He says to Timothy, even, even though that is true, your role as a pastor is to teach sound doctrine, truth. You are not called to soothe the itch of someone's relative truth. You are not called to soothe the itch of someone's moral indifference. You are called to lead people to the living water so that their true thirst is satisfied in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Stand for truth, young Timothy, and it will require you to keep your head. Stand for truth. You will have to endure suffering. Stand for truth. Keep doing the work of an evangelist. Keep ministering to people. Don't quit. When it gets hard, it is hard. Be patient and long-suffering. Having people reject you for the message that you believe in and preach is hard. That's why Paul told Timothy in Chapter two, verse three, join with me in suffering. Like, get on board with it. If you wanna embrace ministry in the name of Jesus, get on board with endurance, get on board with it. Uh, Lucas, last week, he had some fun with 2 Timothy three twelve. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. Did anybody put that in a frame and stick it in their house yet? <laughs> if you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. When I moved to Fort Collins, and when Lindsay and I and our family moved to Fort Collins in 2011, I was hungry to establish relationship with other pastors in the community that had planted churches in Fort Collins. Talk to me, teach me. I gotta learn from you. And one of, one of those pastors is my friend Randy. 
And I've shared, I think I've shared his word to me a few times here, so this might be a repeat for some of you. But this is, this is what he told me. And I had been in ministry for a long time. I was on staff uh, with Young Life for a long time. I was a youth pastor for a long time. I was an associate pastor for a couple churches before we moved here. But we moved here without knowing anyone. And we had this, like, I mean, the, the, the vision that God had given us and the passion that we felt to start this church was, like, real. And, but we didn't know anybody here. So we knew, we knew that this was going to be hard work. And... This is what Randy, this is what he told me to, uh, to minister to me that day. Sounds similar to what Paul's telling Timothy. He said, brother, church planting, welcome to the ministry of rejection. You are going to feel that in a way that you have never felt it before. I'm not going to, and he said, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. He was right. Like you, want, like, you want the real talk, right? Like, you want the vulnerable real talk from me? I believe that. Like, whether you want it or not, you're going to get it from me anyway. That's just how I am. That's how we roll here. Like, you already know that. Um, having people reject you for the message that you believe in and that you proclaim is hard. The ministry of rejection stings every single time. But we press on. We press on. I don't have the power to change anyone's minds. I don't have the power to convince anyone. But I stand convinced, and as God gives me opportunity, I will be prepared to preach the word in season and out of season. And I, I have to stay in a place of my own humility as, as, a, as a follower, as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor of this church to receive my own correction and my own rebuking and my own training so that I can give you what God has given to me and so that we can learn and grow and be transformed in the way of Jesus, but not everybody's going to agree, and not everybody is going to love you for it. Um, that's the side note that I want to give to you. This isn't just for Timothy. This isn't just for Lindsay and I, because we're the pastors here. Like, I believe this, this word is for every single Jesus follower in the room, because in the new covenant of grace, all believers, it's called the priesthood of believers, that the call to be witnesses, to make disciples, is a responsibility that every single Jesus follower has. We are all witnesses. I look to this room, and I don't go, oh, I'm, I'm the laity here, and you are the parishioners here. That's not how I think about this church family and our life together in the gospel. When I stand here, I just go, I am one among brothers and sisters, and we get the privilege, joy, responsibility of believing and proclaiming this message in this community. And I have joy and, and privilege in getting to do this with you. So I look and I see you and I go, brothers and sisters in Christ, co-laborers, partners, ministers, so don't put me up on some like preacher man platform. I don't want to be on that platform. I want to be, certainly I embrace the calling and the gifts that God has given me. But I am, I am not, you know, you know what I'm saying right now? Like I'm just standing on the stage so people in the balcony can see me. I'd much rather be here. I'd much rather be here. But then Ben, can you see me right now, Ben? No, you can. You got to move around. You guys, I just, that's my heart, like, we get to do this together. And it's a calling that God has given to us. Minister, by the way, is just another way to say servant. We're all called to ministry because we're all called to be servants of the living God. And so with these words, verses two to five, Paul concludes his solemn charge, serious charge, 
And then the next three verses, he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you some of my testimony so that you are empowered. Because it is a weighty, serious, solemn charge. And I'm sure that Timothy was feeling the... And so what Paul gives him next is, man, let me tell you, let me tell you what's about to happen in my life. Let me get heaven into your soul. And that's what he does in the next verses. So let's read this, and this is where, this is where we'll finish today. He gets heaven into his soul, and he speaks it over Timothy. For I am already, I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought, famous, famous verse, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now, now in the present. He's speaking past tense in verse seven, and now verse eight, present tense. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed, looked, anticipated for his appearing, second appearing, second epiphania. And then he goes into some personal remarks that we'll talk about next time. What's a drink offering of the old covenant? We see this in Romans, or not Romans, Numbers 15. I'll read you one verse from this passage. They would prepare young bulls or goats or lambs in the old covenant as a burnt offering, as a sacrifice, blood was shed to atone for the sins of Israel and so that their sins were covered. And there was all this instruction about what you do on top of the burnt offering. Uh, there was a, a grain offering, a burnt offering. Uh, there was uh, an oil offering. And then in verse 10, it says, and also bring a half of a hen of wine as a drink offering. And it will be an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Wine, wine was the drink offering of the old covenant sacrifices. In the Last Supper, what did Jesus give the disciples that was a symbol of his own blood? Wine, drink offering. He says this word, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the realities of the old. He fulfilled every iota. Jesus himself is the drink offering. His blood is the offering. And he says this in Luke twenty two twenty. After supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out. Old covenant, bull, goat, lamb, sacrifice, oil, grain at the very end of it. Wine poured, wine poured out, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And Jesus is saying, this is happening tomorrow, not just for you, but for the whole world, and my blood will be spilled. That's the drink offering that was fulfilled in Christ. And Paul is identifying his own martyrdom, knowing that his own blood is about to be poured out for the sake of his faith. He is identifying with Jesus in his martyrdom. This imagery about being poured out as a drink offering is in two places in the New Testament. The first place we see it is in Philippians. So we already looked at Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he says this, these words in Philippians 2. He goes, but even if, like he is longing for more time to minister but he says in Philippians 2, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, like even if, but the language changes in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. He says, I am, I am already being poured out. He, he understands that his fate is sealed. Uh, he, he tells Timothy, like, as for you, Timothy, like, keep your head in all all circumstances, like do the work of an evangelist, like fulfill your ministry, like as for you, you have the ministry, but as for me, as for me, it's time for me to depart, to die's gain. 
The word for departure there was typically used in Greco-Roman culture for troops in battle. It was time for their departure, which meant it was time for them to go home. Paul is saying, I'm going home. Timothy, as for you, minister, as for me, homecoming. I mean, he is, he's leaning, literally leaning to heaven. He had fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. This is not braggadocious. He's not saying that he did the best in the contest. He is saying that he has finished the purpose that God had given him, and it's time for him to go home. He is leaning to heaven. You feel that? It was the year 112 AD. I don't know how many years exactly 112 AD was after Paul died for his faith in Jesus, when he was literally poured out like a drink offering. But in the year 112 AD, Pliny the Younger, Roman Empire, Pliny the Younger, who was a governor of Bithynia, he wrote a letter to Trajan. And Trajan was the Roman emperor in 112 AD. And he was seeking advice. Pliny the Younger, a governor, was writing a letter to Trajan, the Roman emperor, and he was seeking advice about Christians that he was interrogating and Christians that he was torturing. Just just years, maybe a couple decades after Paul dies. And here is what he was perplexed about. In the letter, Pliny recounts the peculiarities of the Christian community. He's, he's interrogating them. He's torturing them. And he's like, bro, what is going on with all these Christians that we're literally torturing? Because here's what's happening. I'm observing that they keep singing to Christ as to God in their suffering. What is up with these people at memorial services that can weep in sorrow and can worship God at the same time. That is so peculiar to Pliny. And I think it's peculiar to many people. But when you, when you have the hope of God, when you are settled, when you are settled, that Jesus is the Lord and that we follow a God who is risen, you can worship at the same time you have sorrow. And people who don't know Jesus have no idea what to do with it, but to go, what is up? What is up with how you worship? Worship has always been a fundamental part of the gathering of believers. Hope is truth rehearsed over and over. Hope, hope in God is truth, the truth of God rehearsed over and over and over. And I don't know of a better way for Christians to rehearse truth than to sing and worship. And the question that's been kind of ruminating, ruminating in my mind and heart this week over this text is, what was Paul singing? What? As he writes these words to Timothy, as he like leans to heaven, as he goes from fought the good fight, finished the race, to now crown of righteousness, like to the present, what was he singing? I don't know what he was singing, but I believe he was singing because of what he says in Ephesians. 5, 9, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make melody and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God for everything. I don't know where your life is today. And I don't know what you're holding today. I know what some of you are holding. I don't know what everyone's holding. 
and you may be in a season that just hasn't been tearful. Or you may be in a season where your tears are your food day and night. And worship helps us rehearse what is true. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that he will come again. And when he does, he will make everything new. And when he does, there will no longer be any mourning or sorrow or tears because we will be in the presence of God and that we, you, me, us, all who call the name of the Lord will receive a crown of righteousness. And it's not a crown that you have earned. It's a crown that you have been given. It's been imputed to you because Jesus the Christ has said, because of my blood, you have been made righteous. And we might feel in that moment a sense like the prodigal son of rehearsing our shame speech, but, but I did this, or, or I've always struggled with this, I've never been able to overcome this, or I, I said this, or I did this, and I've just been dragging all this stuff behind me, all this shame and all this, all this guilt all my life. Shh, 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 shh. You, you are forgiven. You are free. You are free. You are a son. You are a daughter. This is your family. Come into glory. Here's your crown of righteousness. Don't resist the grace of God with your pride. Your sin has no power to the grace and the atoning blood of Jesus. Surrender and be healed and be made whole and step into glory. Some of you, some of you in this room, are going to be. I'm not saying this to be morbid, I'm saying this because I'm preaching. Some of you in this room are going to be at my memorial service. And I will be at some of yours. Unless Jesus comes back before then. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And what I want to tell you is, like, you're free to, like, grieve your guts out. I hope I mean that. I, mean, I hope I, I want to mean that to you. And you mean that to me. So when I go to, I mean, I, I weep. But you better, you better freaking stand and worship Jesus at my service. You better get those hands up in the air. We should never, ever stop singing praise. Amen? Christ Jesus came into the world to save you. Let's stand and worship. Let's stand and worship.